You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one podcast for all things communication, advertising, and marketing. I'm your host, Ted Lau, award-winning agency owner, podcaster, and full-time dad. Today on our show, we have Neil Hoyne, Google's chief measurement strategist. Neil has had the privilege to lead more than 2,500 engagements with the world's biggest advertisers. His efforts have helped these companies acquire millions of customers, improve conversion rates by more than 400%, and generate billions in incremental revenue. Immensely proud of the degrees he's earned from Purdue University and UCLA, Neil returned to academia in 2018 as a senior fellow at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. His first book, Converted, The Data-Driven Way to Win Customers' Hearts, will debut this month in February, published by Random Penguin Random House. So, Neil, thank you for joining us. Hey, Ted. Thanks for having me. So, hey, man, you've done quite a bit of stuff. You and I have talked in our pre, pre-call, and uh, I think it would be great just to, you know, share with the share with our audience a little bit about your origin story how you got here because not everyone gets to work at the google you know and become a chief measurement strategist so I, it'd be really great to see how your journey came about you know that's, that's kind of the interesting thing if you were to go back like, you know 10 15 years ago and be like oh hey neil so this is what you're going to be doing i could not plot the path for you even when i joined google there was more of an expectation in my career that i would be focused on the data and analytics side than anything that i currently do and so kind of the, the origin of it was actually prior to all of this stuff. I graduated uh, from UCLA during the, uh, the, the, the Great Recession of 2008, mm. 2009, where I think employment unofficially for my class dropped from what was traditionally in the, the high 80s down to about the 30% range. And so it was more opportunistic. You take the jobs that you had, and the only company that made me an offer was a company that until that time never hired anybody to look through their data. It was a small open source company called SourceForge. Um, they were, I think they held some distinction during the original dot-com boom of having like the single greatest one-day gain in, in NASDAQ history. Mm. And uh, it, it didn't necessarily work out that way. When I joined the company after week two, uh, they ended up laying off a third of the people. But they hired me because I was like, hey, here's this person that at least has this understanding or curiosity to do something with the data. But it put a lot of pressure on me to say, if I don't figure out how there's some value in this data, why they should keep me around, then I could be, unfortunately, like those colleagues that ended up being dismissed just during my first month of working there. And so that's what the focus was. The focus was just on going through all this web analytics data, and they were on the publishing side, so it was more around serving ads. But also with that particular company, understanding how different people communicate and see data. I remember there was this one story where the, uh, the controller of the company was putting together the, every week this seven-page dashboard. It was printed out in landscape, and this is what he handed over to the CEO because this is the health and the metrics of the company. And I asked him, it probably took him a day and a half every week to put this together. It was a huge process, but it was the most comprehensive view of the company. And where it clicked for me was it came up in a meeting. It's probably about two, three months in, and uh, someone had it. was like, oh, well, hey, why don't you take a look at the dashboard? It's right here on page three. And he picks it up, and the CEO's flipping through it. He's like, what is this? He's like, well, that's your weekly dashboard. He's like, I- I've never seen this before. <laughs> and the poor controller was building it and just ended up on a stack on the desk. And I guess what happened was he was looking at it, and it just looked like a blur of numbers. There was no immediate value. There was a whole bunch of insight and data saying, you have to tell the story. 
And, and so that's just kind of where my capabilities went to, was that I focused and I said it wasn't enough to build another dashboard. It wasn't enough to integrate some data systems. I have to be able to convince the people that I'm working with about what they should do next, about the value of my work. And I guess I was successful because they eventually laid off another third of the company and they kept me around. But that was also kind of a signal to say, well, I've had a couple years of practicing this. Let's see if it's valuable anywhere else. It turned out that it was to Google. And at first they put me in a role where they said, hey, can you teach some of the display people, display advertising people how to tell stories? And then it was, hey, can you engage with our sales teams to help them tell stories and then eventually it just became can you work with our largest advertisers not only on the story part but also understanding how they tell stories in their own organizations effectively how they take all this data that they're capturing and do something with it and that's what it really distills down to that's where it goes full circle is not simply saying hey we're going to go and teach people how to use data but the component of here's how you actually understand and engage with the data. How, here's how you make it intuitive for people. Here's how you actually get people to, to capture some of that value that they, they swear is in all the numbers in, that they're capturing on their CRM systems and their cloud stuff. That's, a, that's really great. And that's a very unique skill set, right? They don't, I don't think they can, maybe they do teach it at school. But when, when you're the guy that has to read the tea leaves, as it were, right? That's kind of what you do. Is there tips and tricks on, on how to do that? I mean, I, th- I think wh- one of the reasons, that do they teach people this? First of all, I my experience is no. And the reason behind it is that it feels like storytelling is a is a soft skill that anybody can do it. Anybody can give a presentation. It's one of those things that's just kind of tacked on to every data and analytics class. Hey, you have to do the analysis. That's the hard stuff. Yeah, but then get in front of the class and present it for a couple minutes and we'll, we'll judge you based on the math. Mm. And so what we're really finding is that there's three roles in data science. There's the people that know how to build and manage what I would consider to be all the data systems, right? The, the cloud platforms, the APIs, all the hooks to get systems internally and externally talking to each other. And then you have those analysts in the middle who they're your, your R and Python and SQL experts who know how to take that data and build those dashboards, And then there's this emerging third role, which is, can you really explain to other teams and other departments what any of this means? And finally, companies are realizing that this isn't the responsibility of the analysts, and analysts shouldn't feel bad if they can't get it. They weren't taught. But there needs to be somebody that can say, hey, let's bring this over to sales. Let's introduce this into their language. Let's learn about what their needs are for the data, how they interpret it, how they use it, and then provide that translation back to the analysts so that way it can guide their work. In most companies, that layer is absent. So you end up with that effect uh, before, which is, hey, the analysts are going to do the best they can producing these reports, and you just hope that other teams actually use it. But we know that's not the case. Yeah, absolutely. And so then, I mean, do you have a team or are you just the, the one guy? Like you're, you're teaching somebody how to do this, I would imagine. Yeah. So what what is that? Is that a... A communication skill? Is it understanding, you know, the fundamentals of, of business pain points or, you know, and then, tr- you know, using that data and yeah. And do you, do you actually have, I'm assuming you have clients that would challenge some of your interpretations and you have to be able to back that up too. Oh, absolutely. And it comes up all the time and it's, it's not to say, and again, if we were to go into any particular customer and say, we're going to teach you about storytelling today. That, that same thought comes to actually be like, oh, I got better things to do at the sea level than tell stories. You know, that's a comms job. That's a marketing job. And instead, you have to go a step further, which is to say, 
we're going to tell you a story about what your data actually means, what your customers are doing, what your products are doing. So effectively, not simply teaching them the abstract idea, but showing them within the context to say, this is how you need to understand your data. This is how your data starts to come together. And then once they see that story emerge, you'll be like, well, so this is what's really happening. Instead of just looking at unique visitors and, and cookies, this is what's actually happening to the business. Something I might be able to observe in person, but I can't see online. Once their eyes are open to that, you can't forget it. And then you're part of that story. Then you get to add your own input and your thoughts. So really what I like to say is it's painting the vision of what's happening in their business off their data and then pulling it back so that they can actually participate in that story. They can teach others. They can bring people in. And that generally is enough just for companies to get started. And then so you you, you deal with you know some of the world's largest advertisers. Yeah. Are there, you know, on the challenge side of things, you know, there's going to be on your, on your client side, you know, guys that are super smart as well, guys and gals that are super smart, they, they, they can read and interpret data. Ultimately, you know, it sounds like there is a subjectivity in some of the, the analysis. How do you collaborate with them and, and make sure that, you know, your interpretation kind of also can fit with some of their interpretation? Well, I would say with it, it's not so much that I'm providing a strict interpretation because it's tough in the sense to say uh, to an analyst that spends, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week for years analyzing a data set that I can come in externally and know more about their business than they do. But what I can do is I can provide context because when we think about advertising, particularly digital advertising, this is fundamentally an auction. You're offering a price to get in front of a particular customer. Someone else is going to offer a price. Who wants that person more? Who's willing to pay more? And oftentimes the way that I look at it is you simply need to have better information than the people you're competing with, even if it's imperfect. And so a lot of my role is simply providing that context to say, here's how you become slightly better than the other people you're competing with in marketing. So you can keep all of your insights that you have, all the data, all the Mm -hmm. positions that Mm -hmm. you have. But I want to teach you at least what's going on, and I want to provoke you to at least act on it. And that's kind of where we fit in. And so do you have, um, you know, do you play a part when it comes to the creative? Do you, do you provide insights there? Um, it, cause the data usually, you know, shares a little bit about where, where things are going, but you don't actually, or maybe you do go, okay, if you just did, you know, maybe not quite add this logo 50% bigger or what, like, you know, not that, but like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, but like you but know, more, campaigns and stuff, do you actually, do you actually provide insights there? Oh, absolutely. And now I will say there are people I work with that are equivalent where I am very much focused on measurement and data and telling that story. There are people I work with that tell the creative story mm-hmm. and do an infinitely better job than I can. Where, where my intersection is, is, you know, people look at creatives and they'll be like, and look, we created this brilliant ad that speaks to the soul. And mm-hmm. I want to say, well, that's great, but why? Like quantify that for me. And that's kind of the intersection of it. You know, there was actually uh, this paper I'm still kind of thrashing through, which was it looked at 700 uh, studies, different ways that e-commerce and travel sites were optimizing their behavior. And we think about optimizing being, you know, we change the text or we change the button size and do more people click it. And it was surprising to find that the most consistently positive interventions that people were able to run on their site were related to human behavior. So this emerging field of behavioral economics that looks at compromise effects and scarcity or anchoring people on a particular price, telling people that other people are looking at their hotel. When they ranked all the tests that were run, 
the test consistently at the top in terms of impact were those that spoke to human behavior. Things that from a data side, I would be the first to claim and be like, that is irrational. Like, why would people not objectively look at the features of a product? Why would people not adequately compare prices? Why would people be sucked in by the fact to say, hey, there's two more people looking at your hotel right now? What they don't tell you is even if there are two people looking, they're likely looking at different dates. But you get sucked into that, say, no, not my hotel, not my price, and you buy, and that's irrational behavior. But that's us being human. And so that is kind of the larger components to where the data side is starting to go is to say, it's impossible for us to believe people are rational actors, that we can quantify everything. So when we want to tell that story, if we want to be successful in that field, do we have enough of an understanding to almost pull outside that field to consider all those unknown variables that we would have previously written off? Okay, well, I mean, we could talk all day about, you know, your your everyday work, but I also think we should talk about your book. I got a chance to get a sneak peek at a, a couple of chapters, um, and it's very exciting. I think the writing is great, as I, I had mentioned to you in our pre-call, that I, I feel like it's uh, it's not very technical, right? And um, But I wanted to, to know, like, how, do you, how does one decide, I'm going to write a book and, and make it engaging because, you know, there's plenty of blogs, podcasts, blah, 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 whatever on this subject matter, yet you're writing it in a very different perspective that I think others have. So, you know, maybe tell me a little bit about the book and how you got there. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, the experience helps a lot because I have this unique perspective. I mean, thousands of companies across like 40 or 50 countries last time I counted, it's a lot. And that that knowledge alone does a lot. But there was always that question to say, you know, you have those insights, you have those ideas. Do they carry any meaning if they're not shared with other people? If other people can participate and add their own ideas and their own insight to that story, uh, then what value does it have to anyone? And so that's really where the entire process started was it just came from this notion to say, can I share these insights? Can I get them out? And early on, eliminated the, the, the profit motive of it. So all the profits of the book are being donated to, to various food pantries, which is fantastic. We just bought, I think, 50,000 meals a couple weeks ago for a food pantry in Chicago. And so you take that all away. You say, I just genuinely want to share. I don't want to make money. And then the next question that I had to sort out was I was like, who's the audience for this? And what I found was that when I tried to write to the, to the big CEOs and CMOs of the world... I ended up adopting a language that it seemed almost forced. It seemed like reading a business white paper, something, and we're all accustomed to this, right? This is why you pick up a white paper and you're like, I can force my way through it, but is there a picture or some bullet points or something, <laughs> let alone saying you have a precious hour in the evening. You know, I, I have kids too. I'm not going to spend time with the kids or read a book on data. And so the compromise really was when I looked at the audience, I said, look, I have a two and four-year-old at home. I'm going to write the book for them. Now, not, not for them now, because they don't read. I mean, they saw, they saw an early copy of the book. They just wanted to color on it, which was great. But in 15, 20 years, when they're starting off in their career, could I create something that was not only timeless, but was also incredibly candid, honest about what I saw? I won't lie to my kids. I won't lie to anybody. But thinking about them as an audience so that they could pick up that book and it'd be the equivalent of them having a conversation with me, that's where I wanted to get them to. And that was really just what I thought. I, I literally was waking up during this pandemic when we were working from home at about 4 a.m., lots of caffeine, and just working and just writing for about four or five hours at a time. And what I found was that just perspective, when people read it, they were like, this is like sitting down with a really smart friend 
and just having a really great conversation that when you leave, you can't forget it. Your world has changed from it. It doesn't feel like it was work. It doesn't feel like I, I pushed myself to learn. It was just something that had kind of that, that same humor and that same flexibility that we appreciate. And so it's effectively, can I tell a good story? If this is what my job is going to be, can I do the same thing on print? Um, and and I'll, be, I'll be honest with all of you, the, the end product of it was just that I was going to self-publish it. I was like, I'll put it out there. If some people are interested in it, great. If not, my kids will have it. <laughs> and as it turns out, you know, Penguin Random House came around, and after about 72 hours, uh, I think they got a copy, I sent them a copy of the manuscript on Friday. By Monday morning, they said, we want this. I said, why? Well, is, is it for your kids? Who's reading this? As it turns out, this is this unmet need in the book space. A lot of people will just say, look, I don't have time to read books, or maybe I think the average American will read a book probably less a year, like 0.8 books a year. And it's just because of that storytelling component is we don't want dry technical literature on data and expansive explanations about how cloud platforms work. We just want, hey, just tell me honestly, like if you were sitting in front of me, what do you see and what should I do? And then, uh, you know, let's, let's share with the audience a, a little bit of, of the book itself. You, there was a sure. early chapter where you talk about starting simple. And I think that was, it kind of grabbed me just because, you know, reading your CV and knowing kind of the stuff that you do, I really wasn't expecting that to be, um, you know, something that you were bringing up. So maybe share with us a little bit about that concept. The idea of starting simple is straightforward. It's that companies often become fixated with buying software uh, instead of actually just taking small steps. It's very similar, and I kind of joke about this, about gym memberships in January here, at least here in the United States, but probably elsewhere, mm -hmm. where you know people start looking at themselves and they start saying, well, there's, I want to improve this about myself. It's like, well, what could I do? It's like, well, I, I, need, I need to get the gym membership because that's a tangible sign of progress. It's a tangible sign of commitment. I went out, I signed up for something, I'm committing myself to do it. And what we know is people that sign up in January for a gym membership will probably go six times the entire year, four times being in January, and then it kind of dies out. And I joke with companies that it's very much like CRM systems. It's like our, our data is all over the place. We need to become more customer-centric. What do we do? Uh, we need a CRM system. CRM systems take 12 to 18 months. 90% of companies are unhappy with CRM systems saying they failed to meet the objectives of their organization. And so this idea of starting simple is to say, let's dispel all those notions right away. You need a spreadsheet, right? You don't need, you don't need an Olympic coach. You just need to go outside for a walk. <laughs> and it builds upon this notion to say, you don't need to be perfect. You don't need to hire data scientists. What we want to focus on is that 1% improvement so that every day your company is 1% better than it was the day before. Simple, repeatable actions. Things where you can literally read a chapter of the book and not having to say, I need to hire people or move the entire strategy, but here's something I can do now. And so that's why that chapter comes first, is to say that the path to success is not long, you know, strategic plans that are, no one's going to read after they write them anyways, but that are supposed to take you 12 months to say, no, I want you to do, and I want to challenge you to do something simple. I want to challenge you to do something right now. That's great. You, um, you know, speaking of starting simple, writing a book is not simple, right? No. And I know you talked about, you know, it's COVID <laughs> and all this kind of stuff and you had time, but I mean, come on, man, like you're, you're, uh, you know, one of, one of the, you work at one of the largest companies in, in the world 
and you got two young kids and you know, you're busy like the rest of us. How, how, how maybe someone that's in our audience is going to want to write a book one day, you know, any tips and tricks? How did you do that? You know, the, once you, once you find the right voice, then it becomes easy. Uh, it's almost like, um, I'll use, let's use some real life storytelling. I had to do a presentation one time for the marketing team and uh, they, they gave me the products and the slides and the speaking notes. And I was like, this isn't how I present. I'm like, when I present, I genuinely know the product, right? I care for the product. I want people to use it. I don't care that I, I work at Google. It's because I believe in it. And that's the message I bring forward. And here you give me a product. I don't understand that I'm not necessarily on board and they're like, yeah, yeah, but you're you're such a, a great uh, you're such a great speaker. Just just go out and, and you'll be fine. And I got up there and it was the worst presentation I gave because I didn't believe in the content. I was forcing myself to mm. deliver someone else's words, what I thought the audience wanted to hear, and the audience felt the same. And and I look at the same thing when it comes to writing. When we do business writing, when we write white papers again or articles or emails, we, we think about how we can make other people happy. Like we have our voice, but we have to kind of tuck that away. And so it's boring for us to write. It's boring for us to read. And so when a lot of people look at it, what they wrote, they're like, this has been a tragically difficult project because it's not them, right? They're writing to, to impress somebody else, to make money, to sell what they think is a business book. So my very first piece of advice is, is what I mentioned earlier, which is just to ignore them, to find the writing that you're happy to put down, to share those honest and candid thoughts, filter it out later. In fact, I had to drop a couple quips just because, you know, people looked down, they're like, yeah, you're going to get, you know, powers to be upset with it. But it's a lot more fun just to be honest with people. The kind of, and it becomes almost, I want to say, therapeutic. It's like, what do you think really about your industry? What do you really think about your business? What do you really think about marketing? And what if you wrote that down and you were brutally honest with people? And it becomes reinforcing. You share those first couple pages with people and they're like, ah, somebody finally said it. I don't need to buy the CRM system. No, you don't. Oh, somebody said it. I don't need to implement everything on Google Cloud before I can get started with marketing. Of course not. It's like, oh, why did more people tell me? Well, because more people are trying to write in the business way. So it sounds a little bit soft for a data guy, but I think the largest challenge anybody needs to come across, whether it's storytelling on a stage or storytelling in a book, is to just remember who they are and that voice and almost unlearn that almost uniform but boring type of business speak that permeates so much of the industry. Do you have a voice? Did you have a voice in mind, like a a pseudo celebrity or somebody that you were thinking of when you were writing this? I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, they asked me when I was recording the audiobook. So and for better or worse, I decided to do it. And they, they said, they're like, who, who would you have record your audiobook for you? And they, they kind of put a little thing. Penguin puts a little thing in there. He's like, you can't say James Earl Jones or Morgan Freeman. <laughs> I I tell them all. And, and so they asked me, they're like, who would you have recorded? And I'm like, I'd like Gilbert Gottfried to do it. Gilbert Gottfried? Sorry, dude. If you got that dude, and I don't know, I don't think I would be able to and, and listen. And that's the thing. That's the thing. And everyone's like, holy shit. They're like, I could not listen to that. I know. But it makes you smile just for a moment to be like, God, I wonder what that's like. Like this. Oh, now this I'm going to have actually... to read your book with that dude. And, and, the, the and parrot. I, Wasn't he the parrot from Aladdin or something like that? I remember. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about that. I'm like, and, and everyone's like, you're not serious. I'm like, I couldn't listen to it. I'm like, no, I don't care. But I like seeing everyone's face kind of light up and just be like, Oh, now, now that's that on the side, Ted, we'll have to talk. I, I did actually, um, Gilbert is on that website, cameo.com. So <laughs> I did pay him a couple dollars just because I needed to indulge it for a moment. I'm like, hey, could you read part of my book, which he did. He was happy to oblige. So I have that. 
But <laughs> the reason why I think about characters like that is because I try to think about what is fun and what is honest and people that inspire my particular point of view. Uh, and so for that, I like reading a lot of autobiographies mm. uh, in that sense. Um, I, I enjoy that context. But at the end of the day, I also come out and I'm kind of like, who's going to be listening to me? And it's a lot easier to think about writing a book for your friends and your family, people that know you and will compare it against the current way that you approach the world than it is to say, here's somebody that I've never met sitting in a C-level office that I want to impress. That's a much different story, and it often, be, it often becomes fairly inauthentic. Yeah, I like the authentic um, nature that, that you bring. And, you know, that Gilbert Godfrey um, kind <laughs> of comment, I mean, it did make me laugh, and it also <laughs> provides me with that sense of, you know, there is a sense of lightheartedness, um, obviously real great content, but you know, it wasn't, you're not overly serious. You're not taking no, yourself. I'm not over. I'm to, not over. Yeah. I'm not going to have penguins are not going to put together a four and a half hour book <laughs> on Gilbert Godfrey doing marketing, but there's still just that party. That's like, Hey, wh what if, and, and granted, I guess the kind of the point that I say here is that I, I think when we go through, and this is just talking about the very core foundation of marketing is that marketing for as creative as it can be, as much as we can think about the different options and the different possibilities, we limit ourselves overall to what we think brands should look like, what we think websites should look like, what we think logos should look like, what we think messaging and content look like. And those expectations, very similar to how we work in data and analytics, there is a parallel to this that we discuss about how we put ourselves in a box. And so even though we're really good to say, hey, look at all the different colors I could use for this button, the reality is that the way that you position the button, where you put it in your choices for call to action, were already limited so much based on what other people told you they think works. Wow. That's true. Now that you say it, I'm like, that is, that is actually true in my experience. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently, so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Now, you um, had mentioned that if you, you know, wrote this book over again, that there'd be one thing that you would have done differently because you, I don't think, considered the, the audiobook. Is that correct? 
I didn't I didn't consider the audiobook. And and for for everyone out there, this is kind of my my impression going in was that you get to go in and you're you're kind of having a conversation. It's your content. We've all read speaking notes before, you know, an email from people. I figured it was the equivalent of that. What I didn't know is that at least with the group I worked with, the audiobook has to be true to form. 100% identical to the text itself. Now you would think, well, Neil, you wrote the text, so you should be... I wrote the text, but then it went through seven months of edits with especially this very nice person with the Chicago style guide handy that was like, no, this must be a colon and you need to change these sentences. And when you read it back word for word, this is actually a really difficult skill. It's something I was told we didn't do uh, really here since the fourth grade, right? You, you may have a book report that you read in front of the class, but generally when you present, you can work in your own words. You can change the pacing, the ordering of a point. You can skip some details. That's not allowed when you're doing an audiobook. So unfortunately, I wrote some longer sentences or some shorter sentences. I made edits to areas where I was like, oh, that's, that's hard to get through verbally. But on paper, at least it's correct. And so that actually turns it a new level of empathy for people who are doing audiobooks is that you're going to have somebody else on the other side. You have a headset on. You're going to have somebody listening going word for word, making sure that if, it's, if it says it, you don't say it and not it's, toward instead towards, which apparently is a big difference between here and, and speakers in the UK. And if you get any of them wrong, they stop you and you have to restart. And after a couple hours, it becomes a frustrating endurance exercise where you move and you get past that kind of like that relaxation where it says, these are my words to, I'm reading a transcript. And that's, that's a much harder proposition. And then so, so uh, you, also, you also touched on, um, I can't remember what it was. It was like a comma or something where the editing process was also a little bit more arduous than you had expected, that there was some kind of rebuttal to one of your questions about a, a punctuation point, I think. I, let's, I mean, look at, look at anyone's email. I mean, we use exclamation points, commas, hyphens, emojis, things that if you sent to your old English teacher would probably, you'd lose some points for it, right? I mean, can you, can you imagine your, your old English teachers ever reviewing oh your, no, uh, no, your, your current business communications? <laughs> I wouldn't pass any class. They'd be like, this is like, you didn't, you didn't properly indent the first paragraph. I mean, you don't do it. But when you're writing a book, and, and this is part of the process, and I, I really appreciate you know the, the, the team at Portfolio, which was the imprint of Penguin I work with, they did an incredibly thorough job. I learned more about comma and semicolon placement than I ever knew in my life. Like I asked one time, I was like, should a semicolon go there? And it solicited a three-paragraph reply from the proofreader about why this is appropriate, citing like content that was four or five pages prior as almost setting a precedent. And so you learn a lot about that particular part of it, but you do have to go through one by one, and they force you to look at it to be like, do you want to add a hyphen? Should this be plural? And you start thinking about it because you've never had to consider these things in your life to be like, well, that's a great question. It'd be like going through an emoji. It's like, do you want to use the big smiley face or the regular smiley face? And then having like 50 pages of historical text around the appropriate usage for each and then trying to figure out how you feel at that moment. Uh, it's it's quite an event. It's funny. I you, When you were talking about that, I I think back to my um, my business coach and and uh, he was, ad, and he's an older gentleman, adamant to never put an emoji 
uh, of any sort in, in any business email. Like, like, oh, that's so unprofessional and all that kind of stuff. And I've, I heard that. I heard someone, someone was very straight. I've heard that. It's like never put an emoji in any type of business text. I will tell you, for the readers out there, I was able to squeeze in. I don't know if they just gave up. There is exactly one emoji one. in the book, wow. which I did just because I felt like I need one. I can't take these things too seriously. I don't even use emojis in email, but I'm like, here, there just has to be one. I remember putting my, the, I remember the first time putting an emoji into the email after my coach had explicitly said, like, this is years later. And I was like, no, it's, guilt, it's, a, it's a different time. I'm going to do it. And I felt guilty, <laughs> but it did provide a little bit of lighthearted, you know, communication that I think sometimes to your comment of the book, uh, you know, the business world is a little dry. And I think this book is, it, it shines a, a very nice bright spot in, into that. And, and, and I don't know, I'm, I'm excited to read it when and, I get a copy, you know, you know, and you make, you make a, you make a kind of a larger point here though. When we're talking about just business, we're talking about marketing in general. Um, the guidelines that surround us with, with everything that we do and how to interpret it. This is part of the challenge a company's face is that, and you see this at CPG companies as well. I was working with one CPG company where I was just asking them about how they do video spots hmm. and, they, as many CPG companies do, have formulas that they follow. So in their case, it's like, must have a product shot, must have a male appreciating the product, then must have another product <laughs> shot. Now, a female and a male appreciating the product together. And, and you look at it, and, and then they, they always come to you and they're like, well, how, how, do, we build, how do we build a viral video? And you're <laughs> not like, not like this, this. <laughs> not like this. And you're like, so why do you keep doing it? Why, why do you keep doing it? You want the viral video. You want something. You appreciate the spontaneous content of others. Why are you going back to the formula? And they say, well, well no, no one ever got fired using the formula. Exactly. And, and, then, and then you're stuck, right? Is because now you've kind of said, look, I know I can do big, bold things. I know how far I can push my business, my marketing strategy, my business, my, my company. And then you're like, but is this the time to try? And there's never a good time to try. It's just having the confidences. And that's, you know, why we write these types of books is so that, you know, people that it will resonate with is to say, yes, I can finally do it. I can finally break outside the formula because everybody else is following. And then everybody else is on the outside looking at you, whether you create that, that great book or you have that great marketing strategy or you're using data, you're now a data-driven company or you created that viral video. And they're all saying, I want to do exactly what that person did. And they say, how did you do it? And it's like, well, I, I simply just ignored a lot of the convention. So, I mean, so I, I've had an agency for, for 20 years, right? And... Um, I get approached maybe not as frequently as, as some would, but every so often I'd get a client that goes, okay, well, I want to, I want to create a viral video, right? I want to, I want to do this and this and this and, and spread it like wildfire. And I don't want to put any ad spend on it, by the way, but I want to make it viral. <laughs> right. And then they have their, you know, but then they have their, their formula that, that they bring. And so yeah. I'm going to ask you this. I don't know if there is a, an answer for this. Cause I, what I tell my clients, there is no, like, there's no formula to making a viral video. Right. So is there, is there any kind of, um, some some pattern that you've seen that that actually makes this workable or is it just uh, what's what's the data tell you so when when i look at viral videos as a whole um the way that i look at it is they're viral which means we get rid of the term viral what are we doing you're creating a piece of content 
that is exceptionally popular with other people. And not exceptionally popular, not only do they enjoy it, do they enjoy watching it, but it's so good that they can't help but share it with other people. That is a raw emotion that a lot of marketers wish they could tap into, something that people love that they want to watch and share with other people, which means it just multiplies their reach. And so that's what they're looking for. And I get rid of the whole viral label. I say, okay, so you want to create some insanely popular content. Well, first you recognize that your traditional way of doing it is going to be very similar. It's nothing new to the consumer watching it, and so therefore it's going to have a difficult time. The next part is that you have to at least be able to connect with that consumer in a certain way. In my area, when we look at data and analytics and we're telling those stories, the best connection point that I have found is not to talk about the data at all. When I talk about data, immediately it casts me in that group. When we start talking, well, okay, and, and you see this with retailers sometimes, it's like really bizarre industries. And you come in, you're like, wow, they have a really exciting business model. And they come in, and I'm like, so tell me about your business. Well, gross units shipped last <laughs> quarter went up. And you're like, wait, wait, where's the passion? And they don't look at their business in that way. It's mm -hmm. all just numbers. And that's why when I talk about marketing, and I say, well, how do we get people to think outside of that context of marketing? It's not enough for me to say, look at this KPI instead of that KPI. But I do relate a lot to human behavior. And this idea, I, I joke around a little bit, and this is one of the areas I had to soften, was about this premise of marketers going into a bar after work and being so short-term with trying to drive immediate conversions and interactions. They go to a bar and let's say their goal is to get married that night or something else. Um, they just start immediately proposing to the people they see. You know, I don't I care about a funnel. I need to drive this objective. This is my goal. And you go through, you know, thousands of people just immediately proposing until invariably some people say yes. And now you start to think, you'd be like, well, who would, who would accept a proposal on the, on, uh, on the first date or on the first time talking to someone? Like, are these really the best people for you? Or who even behaves like that? Like, don't you want to get to know somebody? And you're like, no, 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 it's their goals. And what's worse, you picture these same marketers going outside being like, yeah, I, I proposed to, to 500 people and they all said no, I... I guess they really just showed up at the wrong place, or maybe they didn't care about that, or maybe there was bad targeting on behalf of the bar. Bad persona, they, yeah. They, yeah, they blame other people. Oh, they were just, they were just they were acting like robots. Now, the reason why I use this, uh, and I use this particular framing, is because it gets people to stop thinking about marketing metrics, and it starts getting them to think about personal relationships, something that they can connect with, that they can have that human component with, and then they can start, suddenly they can start realizing and seeing their world in a different way. And I see the same commonalities between viral content. It's viral content that plays and connects with something, something that people intuitively feel, where they're not necessarily being sold. It's just connecting the dots, connecting the data in a way that they can understand, but that they may not have necessarily recognized until somebody brought it up to them. But you're not necessarily saying that you need a behavioral scientist or whatever to, to help you tap into that, right? Like, is there something where, you know, you maybe you, you need to just really understand what's in the the zeitgeist right now, you know, in in, in the world and, and tap into, you know, current events? Well, I, I, I will go even further, tying it back to that comment about, you know, success in writing. Uh, I think a lot of, at least within this context, is being able to leave a lot of the things that we've been taught that all companies are doing at least to the side and to be able to have a new perspective on it. This is why it's great talking to people. In fact, the, one of the, the coaches I work with on presentations has no marketing background whatsoever. Nothing. 
He does Shakespeare, and he's brilliant at it. But when I present and I use terminology and I use stories that are very uh, similar and commonplace for our industry, I don't give them a second thought. I don't challenge mm-hmm. that assumption. And he raises his hand. He's like, what the hell is remarketing? Yeah. And then I realized, I was like, I, if, if I'm with an audience and, you know, 5% of people don't necessarily understand what I'm talking about, I have lost them from the story. They cannot connect. And with how many terms and phrases we use, that's a lot of people that are going to drop off, especially with data. But a lot of the secret is just having a voice from outside to get you to challenge and use different parts of your thinking, different parts of your skill set that the context of business or the context of traditional data and analysis don't allow for. I'll take it. Okay, man. Hey, I know you're a busy, busy dude. So I wanted to uh, play a little wrapped round questionnaire with you just so oh, that boy. The, the audience knows a little bit about, about Neil. All right. I'll do my best. Go ahead. All right. Favorite appetizer you'd have at a Mexican restaurant? Favorite appetizer? Oh, it's, it's got to be guac. I guac. mean, we're, we're California. I mean, we, everything has to have avocado in some component of it, right? <laughs> Are you, this is not sponsored by the state of California, people, just, just so we know. Um, night owl, early bird. Uh, used to be a night owl with the, the kids. It's an early bird. I try to get work done. I am exhausted from them. I find it's easier to get, you know, six, seven hours of sleep and, and start fresh. Do you have a favorite? You're the boys, right? You got boys? A uh, boy and girl. Boy and girl. Okay. Favorite, uh, cartoon that you guys are watching? Favorite cartoon. Uh, I have, I have watched too many kids cartoons and I know the songs and the characters for each uh, the, the favorite one of the moment is for my son. It's Paw Patrol. For my mm-hmm. daughter, it is Gabby's Dollhouse. Gabby's I, Dollhouse. I my said, daughter did not do Gabby's Dollhouse. Paw Patrol I, was popular, yeah. Paw Patrol, they got the towers and the toys and all this. And, and, that, and by the way, a new level of respect for marketing people for kids' toys. Not only can they come up with this, this stuff and these annoying jingles that you can't get out of your head. I was like, it just don't do the Paw Patrol song. Go, Go do... I don't know. Go do Pepsi. Oh man, you but, you you didn't you didn't go through the Wiggles. I we had the Wiggles no. phase. Big red car. My gosh. I mean, the hell? Oh, oh. no, I don't. I, that sounds terrible. No, <laughs> I, you know. And then they upsell. This is they are the best at upselling. Like they come mm-hmm. out with a movie for Paw Patrol, and all of a sudden my son's looking at me like I got two of these huge towers. It's like it's obsolete because they now have a brand new tower. Like they they show the destruction of the old tower or something. I'm sure in the movie, and it's like, and look at this new tower. And then all of a sudden my son's like. No, this, this is what every kid needs. And I'm sitting there being like, yeah, I know a marketer made this decision. It's like, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to tell the toddler he needs a new toy and he's going to run to his parents right before the holiday season. I'm like, ah, you're good. All right, does Amazon have the new tower? Let's take a look. <laughs> uh, first thing that you marketed. First thing that I marketed. Um, it actually would have been, it would have, I mean, it was really on that publisher side. Um, prior to that, I did consulting work in financial services, which... I don't know how you market things like treasury products. Like this is just like there, there's people that are passionate about it, just like those people that are passionate about proofreading. So I wouldn't necessarily say that I successfully marketed anything. I would say that I went through the motions of what was taught to me that other people called marketing. So you're a Chicago native, right? I am. Yeah. A lot of sports in Chicago. What's your favorite sport that you watch? I, I grew up during the, the, the Jordan era for the Bulls, okay. so it had, it had to be that. I'll tell you, I've, I also, um, even though I grew up on the south side, I do love the Cubs. Uh, that was one of the joys of going to the Cubs games, at least at that time, was that nobody expected the Cubs to win. 
So you just kind of went out to watch a game and just to have a good time. Like you didn't, you didn't think your team was ever going to make the playoffs, so it didn't matter. <laughs> You're just going out there to enjoy a day, and Wrigley Field is a fantastic ballpark. Uh, that was there. But then we also got in between that, that, that Jordan era of the Bulls for several years, which was just phenomenal and just kind of you know, gave you that love of basketball. It, it's easy to gain that love, right, because your team's winning mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was just – I still look back at that memory. Just Like even now, we have the Golden State Warriors, but it doesn't connect with me the same as, as the Chicago Bulls of that era. Favorite snack at a ballpark? Snack at a ballpark, hot dogs. They oh, just yeah. – you just can't do those types of hot dogs at home. And, and okay, I know you're from Chicago. Yeah. Deep dish pizza or like the the just um, the Italian style, you know, the what do they call the forno pizza? No, no, deep dish. I actually have that stuff, you know, it's flown in now that we can't travel because of the pandemic. They they will put that stuff on dry ice. They will put it, you get like three or A four deep pizzas dish together. pizza. They'll, they'll put it on dry ice and it's still good. Yeah, they ship it out. You got to do it the right way. You have to order. They have to ship it on a Monday because if they ship it on a Tuesday, it's going to sit in some UPS warehouse over the weekend. <laughs> wow. And it comes to you. It comes to you. And it's it's terrible because you open these like things and all the dry ice is gone. And the pizzas are like soggy. Like you pick it up and it's like folding in the middle. You're like, no, no, no. But then they reordered on that Monday and then it gets to you by that Friday and the dry ice is still there. You throw it in the oven for like six. It takes like 60 minutes. It's almost like cooking a turkey. Like you need to get the heat <laughs> that deep in the pizza. Uh, yeah, it's a godsend. Do you have a particular topping? Oh, I'm just I'm just like a cheese sausage pepperoni guy. All right, okay. And um, last charity that uh, well, you're supporting a charity for the book, right? So, it's, uh, it, who, which one is it? Like just one um, food bank, or you know the the first uh, the the first uh, bulk of the money went to the Greater Chicago Food Depository, hmm. but you know my discussions with them, they're just kind of like, oh well, how's this relationship work? I said generally the the proceeds from the book are going to go to as many different locations as I can connect with and help with. So sometimes it's tied just to other people who worked the book who are in areas to say, hey, can you support this function? Happy to do it. In other cases of say I'm doing an, an in-person conference in Los Angeles or San Antonio, it will go to local areas there. Uh, but the good news is that all the money from the book, that's where it's going. Uh, so it's just really seeing how many people we can help regardless of where they live. That's fantastic. Any um, tip for our, our listeners, you know, just, uh, you know, from one of the, the dudes in the industry, you know, any anything to share? Tips. Oh, boy. I mean, we could talk about career stuff. We could talk about marketing stuff. I, I wouldn't say this is so much a tip as much as it could be an observation that would be helpful, which is that a lot of companies, a lot of people I work with uh, often have these ideas of what it takes to be best in class, what it takes to advance and grow their business. And I hope at least one takeaway from everybody listening was that it generally what stops companies is not that they're climbing this ladder of progress and they never get high enough. It's most of the time that they never start. Hmm. You know, they stand there and they say, this is going to be such a daunting project. I'm going to need money, resources, commitment. The most successful projects are often people who are just sitting, listening to these types of messages, listening to your podcast and saying, I'm going to do that today. I'm going to do that tomorrow. Right? Yeah. And tomorrow I'm going to find a new idea and I'm going to do that. And the latter may be a little bit fuzzy, right? Because I didn't set a 12 or 18 month objective. That will come in time. But what you'll realize is that you can grow in your capabilities. You'll grow in your success to where other people will look back. And like I said, they'll say, wow, what did, what did you do? Like, what's, what's the strategy? How can I replicate that? Because everyone tends to gravitate towards, and this is my observation, they tend to gravitate more towards these like 
you know, oh, these, these single items. Oh, they implemented the CRM. That was the key to their success. Really what you're building here is a system. You're building a system to make that incremental improvement almost at all costs to look at how much money is still on the table and to grab as much of that as you can. Whereas a lot of people are just stare at that money and think about it and be like, well, should I grab that money? Well, what could be the consequences? Or what if there's another table someplace else and they overthink it and they remain stagnant for years and just avoid that place. Avoid that place. That's all it takes to be successful. So it sounds like a little bit of courage, one step at a time, keep it simple. That's that's and, what it uh, is. You can have all the data in the world, but if it sits in a, a silo on cloud where you're just convinced that someday you're going to cash it all in, that data is going to expire. It's going to grow old. Use it today and, and you'll you'll be just fine. It's, it's really that simple. All right, Neil. Well, so tell everybody, how can we get the book? Book book is online through uh, almost every retailer you could imagine. It's going to be on hardcover format. It's going to be on ebook. It's going to be on audiobook. Everything coming out February 22nd. If you want specific links to bookstores, you can go to convertedbook.com. Well, certainly, you'll be able to pick it up on Amazon as well. All right, Neil. Well, I'm excited to read Converted, the data-driven way to win customers' hearts. Thank you very much for uh, your time today. It was, it was great. And uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the, the conversation. And hopefully, you know, uh, your editor will give us permission to add two emojis <laughs> next time to your next book. Outstanding, Ted. Thank you so much. All right, Neil. Thanks, everybody, for a great episode of Marketing News Canada. I'm Ted. This is Neil. And we're signing off. See you, everybody. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded in the Jelly Marketing Studio, thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editors, Travis Jeffers and The Podfather. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.